Welcome to episode 58 of the No Degree Podcast. Richard Bliss is a social selling expert and one of the top LinkedIn trainers. Richard has a background in marketing and his career has spanned many industries. Richard has worked with startups and high growth companies and gotten them great results. He has lived in Latin America and Asia. He has gone through the highs and lows. At one point, he even lost his job to his ex-wife, who was his wife at the time. Richard always outworked his competition and reinvented himself. He believes in treating his workers well, and that is one of the many reasons his company is successful. Listen to this episode to learn about his journey. Visit nodegree.com to start your journey. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show wouldn't be possible without you. Let's get this show started. Hey, Richard. Welcome to the No Degree Podcast. Can you give the audience a brief introduction of what you do? Sure, Janai. It is a pleasure to be here. My name is Richard Bliss. I'm the president of Bliss Point Consulting, author of a book called Digital First Leadership. My company helps executives, leaders, salespeople understand how to negotiate, navigate in this new digital realm that so many people find themselves working in. And so that's one of the things that my company does. Wow, that's interesting. How'd you get into that? We can stretch it all with the way back to the previous century. But in reality, my background is, is I was in marketing. And I started in marketing because I joined a bunch of friends and we were all kind of technical. And somebody said, who's going to do marketing? And they said, Richard owns a tie. And so I started doing marketing. And that's kind of how I got into marketing. And I rose up through the ranks and became the executive vice president of a variety of companies. But about 10 years ago, it's actually 10 years ago this year, I lost my job to my wife, ex-wife. Oh man, that's got to burn. That's got to burn. It does. And it's kind of a crazy story, but it happened is that uh, because of the circumstances, I got let go and they put my wife in my position instead. And I was in a situation, Janide, where I had to reinvent myself. I literally was kind of locked out of the industry locked out of the whole ecosystem. I couldn't go work for a competitor because I mean, it's my wife's our breadwinner, right? I'm not going to go compete against my own household. And I had to reinvent myself. And at the time, 10 years ago, you know, podcasting was kind of uh, just starting off. So I launched a podcast. I wrote a book. I published it on Amazon. I uh, did a blog. I got out on Twitter, uh, built a Twitter following to, into the tens of thousands. I taught myself all of these different tools because it was literally like, I got to start over. And that's kind of how I ended up then being brought to a very large, I'm in Silicon Valley now, at the time I wasn't, but came to work for a series of tech companies helping their executives do basically what I did. How do you invent yourself online? And uh, that's how it kind of got started. And then a couple of years ago, several of those executives suggested I start off on my own and I did. I launched my own business and now we're up to 10 people. So it's been, uh, it's been going, going very well. That's serious. So let's kind of take it back to high school. How was high school like for you? And what did you want to be in high school? I give you a little bit of background. My childhood was incredibly disruptive. Between kindergarten and the sixth grade, my mother was married five times, and I went to 14 different elementary schools, six different schools in the sixth grade alone. From you know September to May, I went to six different schools in three different states. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, military, I'm like, no, I'm getting a new dad. I'm getting a new life, a new name. I mean, it was crazy. So when high school came along, it was the first time I'd ever settled down. It was, and 
I was not used to being in an environment where I knew people or it was established. And so I was drawn to things in high school that I always felt a bit of an outsider because I didn't grow up here, wherever here was. And so it took me a while to figure that out. But I loved, I loved history. I loved reading. I loved to learn. I'll tell you one story. Science. I'm in a basic science class. And I think it's my senior year. And you get the uh, ACT scores. I can't remember what it was. SAT. Well, I can't remember which one it was. And the teacher's handing out all the scores to everybody in class. And I don't get one. He stops in front. Of, and, and these are all like smart kids in school. And I'm just, I'm in the back row, in the back, sitting next to my girlfriend at the time. The teacher starts saying, you know, we've got somebody in class who's kind of been sandbagging, who's kind of not been, who's a lot smarter than they're letting on to be. We've got somebody in class who's doing, who maybe is underachieving and flying below the radar. And everybody's looking around saying, what is he talking about? And he slowly walks back and hands me my test results because I guess I had the highest in the class. And I had no idea. And so when you ask me, what was my dream? I had a couple of dreams. One, I wanted to learn how to write because I wanted to express myself, but I was terrified. And so I wrote a lot, I wrote a lot of fiction, personal fiction, telling stories, fantasy, that type of thing. And then computers were just coming out. And so I was fa- I'm old. I was fascinated by technology. And so I was playing or dabbling around with that. And so it, right after high school, I went to South America for a couple of years I learned to speak Spanish. Right after that, I went to China for a year, to Taiwan. I learned to speak Chinese. And so by the time I came back, I was 22. I'd lived in multiple countries, spoke multiple languages, had figured out a way to travel the world. And it was that point that I'm like, okay, now what do I want to do? So up until that point, life was pretty chaotic. That childhood, high school, and then traveling the world. And then I settled down and said, okay, now what am I going to do? Nice, nice. So now what were you going to do? I decided that I, what I did is I sat down, first of all, I'm a journal writer. I've kept a journal since I was about 14. And I wrote down in my journal that I wanted to work for a company where I had like four or five of my buddies and we all got together and we helped teach people about technology and we helped them understand how to take advantage of technology. And I got to tell you, Janita, as I'm saying it, I'm getting goosebumps because I, no one has asked me this question in a very long time. And I'm realizing I just introduced myself. And I'm actually doing the exact thing that I wrote in that journal wow. 30 or 40 years. I'm now realizing that, oh, and it was to teach people how to use new technology to be better at their careers. And I was focused on helping individuals. And here I am as I'm talking to you going, oh, hey, yeah, I kind of, I'm doing that now. And that's because oh, that's- wow. But I really have believed- So how did I end up in Taiwan? I won't go into all the stories, but I wrote my journal. I want to go to Taiwan one day. How did I end up in technology? I wrote my journal. I want to do this. In my journal, it actually says, my dad giving me advice. Yeah, it's 19, what year was it? 1980s something, late 80s. Yeah, dad says I should go work for this guy named Bill Gates. Yeah, I don't know about that because I lived in Seattle. I'm from the Washington State. And there it is right in my journal. Did I do it? No. I went to work for a different software company back in the late 80s. But I really believe and have always, if you write it down and you really believe in it, the universe is going to make it happen for you. Wow, that, that's crazy. That, I kind of got into it that way. Now, you work for different companies. What made you get ahead? I have a philosophy. It's now very true. But as I worked, I always believed that I hired the company I worked for. They didn't hire me. 
That's a good philosophy. And it was like, I'm going to work here for as long as I continue to get to do the things I want to do. And once I don't want to do it, I'm going to leave. And I refer to it as I'm going to pick the bullet that shoots me. And another thing is when the lifeboat goes by and it's got your name on it, take it. Because I am in tech and tech is just an up and down roller coaster. And so occasionally you're up and you're flying high, but it's going to go down. It always goes down. And so you look for that lifeboat to sail by and sometimes it's an unexpected opportunity. Sometimes you don't, you just, but you got to step out with faith. And so I worked for a company once and uh, they actually asked us, they brought us all in. There'd been a reorg. What do you want to do? And I knew what I wanted to do. And this is what I want to do. And I told them, this is what I want to do. If you have me do anything else, I'm leaving. They said, okay, you get to do what you want to do. I then took an opportunity to leave to a company that ended up firing me and giving my job to my ex-wife, but that was after a 10-year period. When I left this company, this was a $2 billion company. And when I left, I didn't hold any special title. I, was not, I, wasn't a, I didn't manage any people. I had a, barely had a budget. And yet when I left, both the CEO and the head of marketing, global head of marketing, the chief marketing officer, both came up to me and heard that I had decided to leave. And they both came up to me and made a comment saying, you have a job with us anytime you want. And I think, uh, Janai, it had to do with the fact that, again, I worked very hard at being the best I could be, but it was what I was interested in. And if I had to do something I wasn't interested in, and this got me into trouble sometimes, I just didn't do it. And uh, sometimes it got me into trouble. But my career followed a path of what I was passionate about. And I would go and to this point today where I teach my kids. Now, my children, I have five daughters, but uh, they're almost all grown. My youngest is almost 16, but my oldest is 32. And I told them, I said, look, the job, there's two things I taught them. The job you're going to have in the future doesn't exist today. So don't be thinking you're going to be, unless they wanted to be an accountant. None of them wanted to be an accountant. My mother's accountant. My brother's an accountant. They didn't want to be an accountant. But the, even in being an accountant, but the job you want in the future. So as people are listening to your podcast, they're in their 20s, whatever. The job they're going to have when they get to my age does not exist, which means they need to be thinking about how do I go about creating the job I want? So that's number one. And number two is when you do get a job and if you don't like it, there's two things to remember. One, they are paying you to learn. So learn all you can because they're paying you to learn. They think they're paying you to do a job. No, they're paying you to learn how to get your next job. And that's what you should always be thinking about when you're in that work environment. Say, okay, what can I learn from this that gets me to where I want to be? Because I got to pass through this one to get to the next step. It's just like taking a step on a path, right? You might not be where you want to be, but you have to pass through it to get there. Did you ever go to college? I did go to college. I went to a junior college, like a community college at first. And then I got offered a limited scholarship to the university. But just as I got offered it, I also was presented with the opportunity. Remember, I wrote in my journal, I wanted to go to China and an opportunity presented itself out of the blue, a Sunday afternoon that I got a chance to go live in China for a year. Actually, it was Taiwan. So back then though, uh, China was locked off. And so Taiwan was all you could access in the West but I got a chance to go to Taiwan. I happened to have a little bit of money in my pocket through a series of circumstances, which was a mind-blowing story. I had to make a decision. Do I take the scholarship to college or do I go off to Taiwan and, learn, and teach English and learn Chinese? I turned down the scholarship because the way I looked at it is like, I can go to college at any time. How often am I going to get to go to Taiwan? Because the circumstances were perfectly aligned. The planets all lined up. So I went to Taiwan for a year. 
and had amazing stories. I flo- spoke fluent Spanish because I mentioned to you I'd been in uh, South America. I got to teach English. At one point, I was standing in a furniture shop, heard Spanish, went around the corner, and a, a woman and her child are standing there talking Spanish. So I walk up and I start speaking fluent Spanish. Can you can imagine their mind being blown. They're in Taiwan, surrounded by Chinese. They're speaking Spanish to each other. And this big six foot two Caucasian guy comes around the corner and starts talking to him in Spanish. That was the wife of the ambassador of the Dominican Republic to the Republic of China, uh, to Taiwan. And I became their tutor for their kids as an English teacher. But the college thing, when I came back at this point, I've been traveling the world and I started getting grief from my mother that why wasn't I settling down? Why wasn't I taking my education serious? Why wasn't I taking, you start hearing it. And I'm like, fine. So I decided I wanted to go to the University of Washington because that's where I'm from. I'm from Washington State. I grew up. I worked out right off campus, but I had to pay for it myself. We can talk about my parents and their belief in education or whatever, but I had to go figure out how to pay for it myself because there was no scholarship. So I went and applied and they came back and said, uh, you are an out-of-state tuition, which is going to be huge. I'm like, what do you mean I'm out-of-state tuition? I was born and raised in this state. No, for the past three years, you have been in Ecuador and Taiwan. You have not been a resident of the state. You do not get to go to college here. I looked at my options. One was to move to California and take advantage of the school system. If you lived there for six months, you could get into the state school system. I didn't know anybody in California. So the other one was, I happened to be Mormon and BYU, Brigham Young University in Utah. I didn't want to go to Utah. I didn't really didn't like Utah. But I was like, all right, I got to go to school because my mother was putting pressure on me to settle down and be responsible. So off I went, I applied. And since I was paying for it, I put together a series of ways that I actually could afford to go to school. So one was I joined the ROTC program in the National Guard. And back then they would actually pay you a monthly stipend. Both the National Guard and the ROTC would pay you a monthly stipend to go to school. I was also able to get Pell Grants. I didn't get any student loans, but I also was able to get a job on campus. And with that money, and then I had a tiny little apartment. I was paying $135 a month for my rent. I'm old. I am old. So I started going to school. But uh, you've already figured this out in me. There's a wanderlust in me. I wanted to go and see things. And so what ended up happening is I got married. I joined the army and I got married because I thought that would settle me down. It didn't. That marriage lasted 16 years, but we moved 16 times because I was just bopping around and I would leave and pursue a job in South Carolina or Oklahoma or wherever it was. And then I'd come back and try to go back to school. And then I'd go off and then I'd try to come back to school. So yeah, I've got some university. I never finished because over time, suddenly it just became not what's the point, but the degree wasn't going to change my trajectory in my career or my life or anything. I only felt it once, and that was when I was surrounded by a bunch of guys um, in Silicon. I went to work for a company in Silicon Valley. I moved to California. And so they're all these engineers from Stanford, and, and, and they're all into degrees. And there were some cultural things there because their cultures really highly identified degrees as important. Mine didn't. And that was the only time I ever felt the twinge of... Uh, I don't know embarrassment's the right word, but you know what I mean? That Maybe not. You didn't feel in the right place. You felt out of place. Yeah, that maybe I wasn't worthy. That, oh my gosh, these guys know so much more than... And it kind of got to me a little bit. That was the only time. The rest of the time, nobody's ever asked me. If you look at my LinkedIn profile, 
you'll notice it says, I went to Brigham Young University and majored in military science and history. I tell people that they shouldn't put their graduation dates on their LinkedIn profiles. I don't have a graduation date on there. I've never lied. I've never told anybody I had a degree. I've never implied I had a degree. But uh, it's never come up. Nobody's ever asked. They ask me what I studied in college. I tell them history. But uh, no, it's never, been a, it's never been a problem. So yeah, I did some of that college stuff. Okay, okay. No, it's interesting. Now, looking back, what were some of the mistakes you made? Can you narrow that down? Because the list is pretty long. Okay, let's see. <laughs> like the mistake, you know, the, the ones that stand out, you're like, darn it. You know, I'm not making that again. Is, is it short enough <laughs> or still too long? No, that works because I'm on my third marriage. And so one of them would have been, oh man, I made a mistake with, uh, you know, that divorce, getting married. And so I'm not going to do that again. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, I did that again. One is I got married really young. Uh, I was 24 and I felt, and I believe it was a, it was a wrong belief that I needed to, to mature and settle down. So I need to get married. There was no problem. There wasn't, there wasn't a pregnancy involved. There was nothing like that, but I decided at a very young age before I had figured out who I was to get married. That was a mistake. Now I, I love my children. I'm cordial with my ex-wife. I mean, life's okay, but man, that was a, I had a whole lot of growing up to do before that happened. A lot of things I wanted to do. Another mistake I made, and I don't know if your listeners, I bought real estate. I bought high and sold low. And so every place I moved, I bought a house and I usually bought high. And then when I moved, I sold low. I look back and think that was the stupidest thing. And the other thing, mistake that I, that's really hard is that I'm in tech. And yet because of all of these uh, distractions that I had and other priorities, I never took the time to actually invest in technology, to actually take some money, set it aside and do an investment. I was spending that money as fast as it came in. I was pretty much avoiding debt, but I was spending the money as fast as it came in and it wasn't going too smart. As I look back on some of the opportunities, right? That I had huge opportunities to to make money. Now I help a lot of people make a lot of money. One young man I helped, I went to work for his company. He was in his twenties and we sold the company for 40 million. He took his money. He took 2 million of that cash and invested it in Cisco stock and other technology stocks. What did I do with it? I bought furniture. Was it nice furniture? It was nice furniture, but it was just furniture. And I was foolish. I was foolish. And I wasn't willing to listen to anybody when it came to, I was foolish. And I look back and just think that was one of the most, so my money and my relationships made me foolish. But when it came to my career, I'm pretty happy with the chaos that I introduced into my career, that this bouncing around on that side, really pleased. I wouldn't be here or have the success I have today if I hadn't taken chances with my career. If I hadn't just been crazy, crazy with saying, I think I'm going to try that. That's what I try to encourage my own employees to empower them to make decisions and to help them understand your role with me is temporary. I am helping you prepare yourself for your next role. That's one of the things I teach all of the people who work for me because that's what you got to do. You got to always be learning and growing and making that next step. And so that part I've been very pleased with. Always learning, always growing. That's what I take with my employees because I understand they have their own futures and their own things. And, you know, I, I'll do what I can to provide for them. And it's interesting because they don't want to leave as much, right? And they want to work harder. And it's like, it's something a lot of business owners don't seem to understand. Yeah. And it comes back to my mentality. Now that I'm the boss, I recognize they that I work for them at their discretion. They don't work for me at my discretion. Yeah, I can fire them, but that means they're screwing up. 
But if they're doing a good job and they don't think that they can grow and do more, they can walk out the door at any time, which means that they are working there at their discretion. And I need to make sure I recognize that. And it comes back from my own career of recognizing and believing that I was making my decisions based on what was best for me. And I need to help them make those same decisions. What advice would you have for someone to prepare for chaos? Like how would, what would you tell them? Like, look, if you're going for a chaotic lifestyle, right? You're going for the the road, you're going all over the place. What advice would you have for them? Well, I'm going to qualify the answer in saying in today's environment, they might not be able to choose that decision. They'll, it'll be thrust upon them, right? And so the best thing to think about I started my business. I had never started a business before. And I started my business because several smart people really strongly encouraged me to do it. And it was terrifying. And it continues to be terrifying every day, running a business. And so the thing that i coming back to, and it comes back to how we started this story about uh, losing my job to my ex-wife, you got to be prepared to set aside, how do I say this? Sometimes we believe that certain places we live, certain people we know, or certain experiences we have define who we are. And I'm here to say, no, all of those things are temporary. And you need to set that, be prepared at some point to set those things aside. The relationships you have, the place you live, and the things you've done and say, well, I can't go do that because I've invested so much in this. No, when I lost my job to my ex-wife, my whole career at that point had been built around this one idea of what I did. And I was well-known worldwide in my industry. I was on CNN, Good Morning America, Fox News, Wired Magazine. I was well known. I get canned. I have no job. Now what am I going to do? I had to set aside any belief or any hanging on to the belief that, oh, this is who I am because this is what I've done in the past. This is who I am because this is where I live. This is who I am because this is who I have in my life or my no. No. All of those things you need to set aside. Now, be careful here. Don't misinterpret that family. I'm not saying set aside family but I'm set aside the business relationships or people you know and say, to get where I need to go, I might have to jettison most of the things that I use to identify myself professionally and then be prepared to be comfortable starting over and not knowing. Ask questions. Find people who know. Ask them. Especially in today's world, social media. You can reach out to almost anybody and if you do it just about right, you can get their attention and have them engage with you if you understand how to communicate with them. That's the advice what I give. Be prepared to give up some of the things that you hold dear that you think so, that are self-identifying when they re- reality they're not. So you mentioned, you know, you've been in tech a long time. How has the tech industry changed in today's environment? Like, how would you say it's different from what it was before? And what kind of forecast do you have going forward? Here's how it's changed. When I was in high school, about back to high school, PCs didn't exist. Okay? So I learned... to use a computer back in the 70s on mainframes that connected universities around the country to each other, all right? There was no World Wide Web. So every technology step when I was in my career was brand new entirely to the ecosystem. I mean, we're talking fax machines. I explained a fax machine to a 10-year-old the other day. Blew his mind. Blew his mind that you could stick a piece of paper at one end and a piece of paper would pop out at the other end somewhere in the world it literally blew his mind that he was like, no way, you're making that up. And I'm thinking, that's a fax, that's a fax machine. And this 10-year-old kid who's got an iPhone in his hand that can do things that would blow the minds of anybody at my career. So what's changed is every step of my career was new horizons, new frontiers, new expansions. But in today's world, that doesn't exist anymore. 
Who doesn't have email? Who doesn't have a phone? Who doesn't have a monitor, computers, laptops, technology, microphone? The technology is pervasive. And so what's different now is you are not going to stumble upon revolutionary new things in technology that change the world. I mean, TikTok is cool and it's gone crazy. Is it revolutionary? No, it's incremental. And so technology today is all about incremental, which means that you need to, one, have a little bit of patience. And two, you've got to look for cracks. You've got to look for cracks in the windows of opportunity where, okay, this technology is out there, but how could you either apply it in a different way or make it a little better? And so for people entering in technology today, you have access to tools that I never had through the ability Amazon Web Services to, if you're a developer, to throw your code up there, open source technology, uh, tying into reaching out to people, international um, teams that can come together. All of those things didn't, didn't exist. And so understand to be more collaborative, be more nimble, and also you have a much shorter runway. And what I mean by that is you got to figure out how to get in and get out. Back when we were starting, Microsoft didn't want to get in and get out. Microsoft wanted to own the world, Oracle, um, Apple, whatever, all the big companies. But in today's world, if you start, it's very going to be very hard for you to find what's called a blue ocean, something that no one's there. Instead, go find somewhere where somebody is, but they're doing a bad job of it. I would recommend a book to your listeners called The Innovator's Dilemma. And the book lays out and outlines why successful companies fail by listening to their customers. And what it explains is the innovator's dilemma is, is that your customers want you to keep doing more and more of the same thing, just better and cheaper. But somebody comes along with an idea that breaks that mold, but it's more expensive and it's not nearly as efficient. Well, customers don't want that. They want you to be cheaper and more features and more functionality. The innovator's dilemma says that those companies can't go back down the ladder to address those low-level customers. You should look for those low-level customers. Look for industries or opportunities where the big boys have kind of just settled in and they're comfortable and you can come in. My company does that, Janide. We have found a model. I have people calling me up all the time saying, how are you doing that? How do you have 10 people working for you doing this because I come in at a price point and a function? I teach executives how to use social media and then I help them do it on a day-to-day basis. Well, that sounds incredibly costly. Nope. We've been able to figure out a way using technology, but also using the new realities of the gig economy. People just have some time. Hey, I could do that. I could do that for an hour a day. And I want to hire that person who has an hour a day to share with me their expertise. I will hire them for an hour a day and we'll make that work for us. And so that's the difference. That's a very long answer, but that's the difference is the gig economy has opened up opportunities to people coming in and the blanket level of of technology means you have to look for those cracks and inefficiencies rather than brand new, man, we're just going to change the world. No, I I think that's a great point because so many people have this theoretical idea of how things work, but then when you go into practice, it's totally different, right? And you can't, it seems like a paradox, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like you have a business to run and you have to be strategic and you have to be forward thinking, right? Not necessarily always think about what's in front of you. So you have a long, illustrious career, what would you say you're most proud of? Yeah, there's a lot of things on that list. Probably the one, I'm going to go back to the young man that I helped build his business. It was in Dayton, Ohio. I was working for a company and we had invented 
I actually had invented this really cool thing. I won't explain it to your listeners because today it's not cool, but back then it was way cool. And to the point where, as a side story, Google got involved by suing a company that used my idea because Google had supposedly patented this thing that I invented. I got involved with that lawsuit and refuted Google's patent because I had invented it and not them. I didn't patent it, but I had invented it. So I invent this idea, but I have a falling out with the owners of the company. Uh, Remember what I said? I work here. So I call up this young man who had been our customer and then became our competitor. And I call him up and said, hey, I need to come work for you. He's like, okay. Now, his company was tiny. It was mostly his family. I'm the, I was the only employee over 30. So I hop on a plane because I had a lot of frequent flyer miles. I hop on a plane and fly to Dayton, Ohio. And in Dayton, Ohio, I sit down with him and I explain to him why I should, he should hire me right then, which he does. He hired me. And we went on to build a pretty incredible business. If anybody's been to Las Vegas, out uh, south of town is something called Speed Vegas, where you can drive exotic cars on a race course. He built that. Because the business did really well. He ended up selling the business for $40 million that we did together. But that's not my greatest accomplishment. Here's my greatest. And I'm smiling because this is going to be silly. I really believe in empowering my teams. I've always believed that. So my team came to me with an idea, a marketing idea. And it was a edgy idea. And I knew that it wasn't going to fly within the company because the company was very conservative. It was a very conservative company. But I went ahead and approved it. I was the head of marketing, global marketing, and I approved it. Here's what it was. Our business protected email from viruses. Okay? That's pretty standard today. But back then, we actually protected email from viruses that were transmitted across the internet. And it was radical. And it's what I invented. So it was a radical idea, this radical thing. But we were trying to convince people what this thing was because it was so radical, nobody ever heard of it. And email was still kind of new. So my team came up with an idea. We were going to this trade show for lawyers in New York, and they wanted to do this marketing campaign where we handed out condoms with our logo on the packaging. And we would hand these out to companies and tell them that this was software for your hardware. Oh, I like that. It was personal antivirus protection. It had all of our contact information on the back of the condom. And we would hand these out. I agreed to do it. We went to New York and I was under a lot of, the the president of the company, the CEO, uh, let me do it. But his family members weren't going to be happy with this. But they didn't know. The first show we went to, I handed it to the guy and he's like, oh, I get it. You're like protecting my email, like you're protecting me. I got it. I literally hit the CEO with my fist because he had had doubts. We then went to the next trade show and they said, you cannot hand these out because we were going to put them in a candy bowl and let anybody just come by and grab them. You cannot hand those out. It's like, okay. So what I did is I stuffed my pockets full of them. We had 500 of them. I stuffed my pockets full of them. And then people kind of knew. And so people would come by and they'd say, hey, I hear you have something that I might be interested in. And so I'd pull one out of my pocket and hand it to the person. I'd be like, don't tell anybody. Well, you know what they're going to do. Yeah, they're going to tell. They're going to tell. So I'd hand it to them. And then other people, I can remember people looking and wondering, is some type of drug transaction going down there? Because we're like passing things. We were the most popular booth. One woman came up and she said, I hear you have something that, that I, I can use. And I'm like, yeah. She says, I need 10 of them. 
And there's a guy standing next to her. I said, I don't know where she's going, but I would follow her if I were you. She was actually taking them back to her office because she, they thought they were so cool. So when you look at my entire illustrious career, that one thing stands out. One reason is because when we got back to the office, I got called on the carpet and chewed out. And yet I never, ever mentioned that it was my team's idea. It was my idea. And what I, I wasn't taking credit for their idea. I was taking the blame and it never passed down to them. And I still look back at that being one of my most proud moments of a, as a manager, a leader, and also as uh, pushing the envelope out there and being creative. Take risks, have fun. And that still is a story that people who were there still tell that story. That's a great marketing thing. That's genius. Now, what was the hardest thing you went through? Right after I got let go by, my, uh, by the company and my ex-wife took the, the job, she came to me and asked for help. And I got to tell you that I was in a difficult situation. One, if I helped her, it would be obvious. She and I had very different styles, but if I helped her, it would be obvious. And I felt that it would actually diminish her job because they would say, oh, she's not doing it. Richard's doing it. And so I actually had to step away and say, no, you're kind of on your own on this. I was supportive, but I put her through that. At that point, then I had to start looking for a new job. And I started interviewing and, inter and I was in Silicon Valley. But one of the things that's important about getting a job, particularly today, isn't about your skill set. And it's not about your experience. It really is about who you know that can vouch for you. Because in today's, every job posting that goes up gets hundreds of applications. But they need to know if they can trust you, if you're going to fit into the environment, if you're going to fit into the culture. And also when somebody recommends you, they're not just recommending you, but they're putting their own reputation on the line. And so that becomes very important in some environments. And so I had no network. And I interviewed and I interviewed and I interviewed and I took a job with the company that it was a terrible company. He um, would hire people for 90 days and then fire them at day 89 so that he didn't have to pay unemployment. I got sucked into this thing. Employees came by and whispered to me, you should not be here. You need to get out. I mean, it felt like the freaking movie, Get Out. That was incredibly stressful because I was having to support provide for my family. I was trying to reinvent myself. I was trying to do what I thought following these rules and it almost crushed me. And it was when I finally stepped away and said, look, no, you got to reinvent yourself, not try to just use what you have. That's when I sat down and said, I'm going to start a podcast around crowdfunding. I'm going to write this book. And I found tiny little things to reward me, to, to reinforce my value to myself, because at that point I was pretty low. Nobody wanted to hire me. It was 2008. No, it was 2011, but the economy still was recovering. And I was way out of my league. And a friend came to me, and it was a tough thing for him to say to me. He said, Richard, you're reaching too high, which meant I was applying for these roles that were very high profile. I was under a lot of pressure from my ex-wife, ex-wife, but I wasn't really as prepared to step into that role as I thought I was. And there was nobody around to vouch for me. And when he said that to me, it made me realize that I was, I was trying to rely on my past, my experience and my lack of connections to say, Hey, I can do that job. Well, yeah, maybe I could, but they weren't willing to take that risk on me. So instead I said, I stepped back and said, I need to figure out how to make myself valuable to a whole nother environment. When I wrote the book, it's terrible, by the way, the book I wrote 10 years ago, because I self-edited, self-wrote it, self-published. 
I don't encourage people to, if you're going to buy one of my books, buy my book that came out last month, uh, Digital First Leadership. But what happened was, Janide, and this is important to your audience, I put that book up on Amazon and I told people, I wrote a book. An acquaintance of mine in the UK saw that. That acquaintance was in contact with a company that was looking for somebody to write for their senior leadership and help them learn social media. But they had to live in Silicon Valley and they had to be available immediately. Well, my contact saw me living in Silicon Valley, knew that I was in between jobs, saw that I had just written a book and and put my name up for consideration. The job paid 800 bucks a month, so nothing. But I recognized that it was my first step in reinventing who I wanted to be. And remember at the very beginning of this call, when you said, what did I want to be and what did I do? Writing. I wanted to write. And I had never done that in my career. Yeah, I'd written press releases and a few things, but I had never sat down and wrote. For the first time in my career, just 10 years ago, I actually took a job writing for the first time and discovered an inner talent that I had lain there for decades and was able to use. And now I've turned it into, that's what we do. We write for executives, we write for companies, and we help them understand how to communicate online. And so sometimes don't give up on those dreams, but realize you got to go pretty low before you, you actually are willing to give up on all of that baggage you've collected along the way to be able to step into that. That's, that's a beautiful story. So if you turn 18, right, you'll say you're 18 today, what would you do? What would 18-year-old Richard do? 18-year-old Richard would not take any of the advice that I've given to everybody over the last 45 minutes of our conversation. That's one I know. And two, I would repeat what travel is the best education you can ever have. I have been to every state in the United States except for North Dakota and Vermont. I have visited and traveled dozens of foreign countries. I speak foreign languages. I have lived in other countries. I would say to 18-year-old that the world is so big today that you need to make sure that you experience it because the way it's benefited me today as the very old man is that I've recognized that common sense is not common. That common sense, for example, I live in California. If you step off the curb in California, every car that can see you will stop. Unless, of course, they're from another state and then they're going to run you over. But Common sense is, is that when you get to that curb, every car is looking to stop because it's against the law. Once you step off that curb, no matter where you're at in that crosswalk, to go through that crosswalk. You go to another state, Utah, for example, South Carolina, for example, where I've lived. You step off that curb, you better be looking both ways because you're taking your life into your own hands. I use that as an example because when you travel, you start to see the world through the eyes of the people who live there and you start to see things you never imagined and you start to understand things that you are oblivious to. We're particularly seeing it today, Janide, with what's going on socially, with Black Lives Matter, with what's happening with the Me Too movement. By getting yourself away from your environment, remember I said letting go of the geography, that was purposely said, get yourself into those other environments, you can start to see and understand the why behind people think rather than just the what you see them doing. And that's what I would tell my 18-year-old. Take that advantage. No, I mean, look, I was born in Bangladesh. I came here when I was three years old. And when I visited, it was a big culture shock. You know, you kind of see, you get out the airport, just smells different, looks different. And then, you know, just people begging, people just did. I remember, this is a story. I was, you know, they have in... They have like those little mini taxis, right? With the no doors and, you know, three people can sit in the back. So you go and then, you know, obviously when you're in traffic or at a light, there are people selling things on the street, right? 
And I bought from a kid, you know, I was middle school, right? I bought, was I elementary or middle school? I think middle school. And I bought a the fifth Harry Potter, or I think Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, one of them, or the Half-Blood Prince, one of them. It was the smaller ones. And it was like this kid in elementary school selling the, me the book, you know, like a bootleg copy. And it's just crazy. Like you, you think about it and it's just a totally different experience. But, you know, that's all they have, right? They can't really go to school. They can't afford it and they have to be able to survive. So it's, you know, I can tell someone about it, but experiencing it is like something you just still remember. And you just think of like, you know, you know wow, we're definitely lucky. And when you see the news, you don't see the news through your television. You see the news through the prism of that memory. You are personal. You're there. And you brought up a point. People don't understand the smell is probably the biggest thing that hits you wherever you go. When you step off an airplane in a foreign place, the smell, it's so closely tied to memory. My smells of stepping off an airplane in Taiwan versus stepping off an airplane in uh, Honolulu or uh, Maui versus stepping off an airplane in Salt Lake City versus stepping off an airplane in London. There's a different, unique smell to each place and it locks it in. And so the fact that you mentioned the smell continues to be one of the strongest memories I have of all those places I've been to. What did you do to get ahead? Because you've obviously always reinvented yourself. You always learn things. What was your process for learning? Did you read books, mentors? What was your process? All of the above. So one is read, read, read. I've got some books behind me, I think. Yeah, I got some in there. I've got books in, in the house constantly reading. It's been harder lately. Even this week, I've been struggling with the fact that I haven't been able to read. I've read two good books this past week, though. I got sick, and so that was one of them. Robert E. Lee and Me, fantastic book that helps you understand the concept of uh, white privilege and how it's been integrated into the carryover from the Civil War. Fantastic book written by a West Point instructor and uh, off- army officer. The other one was uh, Prisoners of Geography, how geography has shaped the different cultures of different countries, like India and Bangladesh, China, the United States, Europe, Africa, how geography comes into play, helping me keep an understanding of how people think differently. And so that was one. When it came to my podcast, I didn't know how to do podcasting. So I started calling people up. Hey, how do you do this? And I asked questions. What kind of microphone do you use? How long is your podcast? I started doing research. When I did my podcast, um, I watched The Daily Show. John Stewart on The Daily Show and used a stopwatch. How long does he spend actually talking? And how does he cover his topics? Three topics in 18 minutes. The Daily Show is only 18 minutes long. And yet when you watch it, you're like, that was so much content. How did he get all that content into such a short amount of time? And so I would ask, I would experiment, I would practice and fail. I talked about getting my Twitter account up to tens of thousands. I have two Twitter accounts. Both of them are over about 20,000 followers. But I I like board games. So I developed a, board, a Twitter account that I could practice on talking about board games so that if it failed, nobody cared. So that when the time came for me to do a real one where I actually was talking about business, I had learned my lessons. And so I found ways to practice and fail. And that constant failure is what continued to help me do that. From today, this podcast that we're on right now, to the camera that I have, I just, I continue to ask people. And, and there are certain people in my life know that they'll get a random text from me. Hey, hey, you know this. How do I do this? Never be afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that. I was on training today with some clients and some training yesterday. And twice I actually said, I'm supposed to be the expert. I don't know the answer to that. And being willing to admit ignorance is the first step to mastery over any subject or, or idea. And then just read, read, read. 
stop watching Marvel movies and read. No, don't stop watching Marvel movies. I like those, but spend a lot of time reading. No, I think that's great advice. Are there any books like three to five books that really stand out? Yeah, there's several. One would be, uh, all of them are most, most of them are old. Uh, although one of them, I'm going to start with the most recent one. So this one that I've got, it's called Post-Corona. And it's called From Crisis to Opportunity. And it talks about what environments, what industries are going to take off after the coronavirus is over. And it's by Scott Galloway. Scott is a former- I saw him speak in- no I way. saw him speak in person. Let me tell you. So I went to like, someone invited me to like a live podcast. I didn't really know who he was. Man, he is one of the wittiest and best public speakers I have ever seen. He's so quick and he knows how to come up with eloquent statements just off the top of his head. Him and Karen, the other girl, Karen, something I forgot, the journalist who wrote, that was so amazing. I bet. So you're the only person I've talked to who actually knows who this guy is. I just picked up this book kind of randomly because uh, I kind of was interested. And then he is, he is amazing. The writing is amazing. So this is one of the most recent books I've read that well worth anybody to, I, and in my training, I'll tell people, executives, CEOs, you know, what should I be reading? This. Then the uh, 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. It is a fantastic book. It's very old, but it has some nuggets in there. And one of those nuggets is, is to own a word. Every idea can... So if I say overnight delivery, who do you think of? Well, you think of Amazon Prime, but if I said FedEx owns overnight delivery, you absolutely positively have to be there overnight. That's their tagline. They own the word overnight delivery. Now, Amazon started to steal that with Prime. I ordered something this morning that's going to be here this afternoon. So, right, I don't use FedEx because FedEx also overnight started to equate expensive. But the idea of owning a word, so what would be another good word? If I said hybrid car, what pops? No, Tesla would be electric vehicle. Oh, hybrid. I guess, I don't know, Toyota? Who, Fisker yeah, Car? No, you said it. You said, I don't know, yeah. Prius, Toyota. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. Number one answer. I ask this question oftentimes when I train college students and interns and, and the idea of owning a word. And so in this book, the idea of owning a word comes across that you can own a word for your own career. You can own a word for an industry or a company, and nobody can take that word away from you once it's in the minds of your customers. So 22 immutable laws of marketing. That's one of the laws, owning a word. The other one would be crossing. Well, I mentioned innovators dilemma. Uh, by Clayton Christensen. I read that when it came out and uh, signed up and became part of their whatever, but that's a fantastic one. And then the last one would be uh, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm has a book that has defined the tech industry and the concept of how people move through the adoption of technology as a market. And it's incredibly, it's, it's an older book. It's a lot's been written about it, but the, those are the books that have stood out that have allowed me to understand the past and what was going on. And then something like this, which helps me understand what's coming in the future. If you're going to buy stock, this guy says, buy stock. He says, buy Amazon, buy Google, because they're unregulated monopolies. No, I mean, he had, when he was talking about those tech companies, when, oh, I'm jealous. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I mean, it was just funny how I got invited. Someone just randomly invited me. And it was oh my just, gosh. Was like, oh, Next time you get that random invite, let me know. Cause that would have been so cool. No, I mean, anytime you're in NYC, definitely will sort of let you know. So, right, let's slowly start to wrap up. What are your future goals, right? You've obviously accomplished a lot, right? You have a long career. Like, what kind of goals does a person like you have? I reinvented myself two years ago by becoming a small business owner. And I now have 10 people working for me. The goal is, so every time you go into work for a job or a company, whenever you start your own company, you have to have an exit 
plan. That's the idea. Either you sell the company or you create the company so it's a lifestyle company, so it just keeps going. I've realized now that you and I talk that this realization goes way back, I really, really like working with people I like doing things that help people. I know that's kind of generic, but that's exactly what we do. And I realized I get to work with the very people I want because I hire them. And I get to pick my clients and solve problems for them and be constantly thinking about that. So my goals are to create something. These stories I've told you, I helped people. I helped a lot of people make a lot of money. But one time I was sitting down with a venture capitalist and we were making a pitch about our company and this new thing we had invented. I actually had invented it, but this new thing we were doing. And the venture capitalist turned to the CEO, who was a young man, and said, tell me about the structure of the company from an ownership standpoint. He said, well, I own 80%. My, brother owned, my younger brother owns 10%, and my sister owns 10%. There was a pause. The VC turned and looked at me, because there was only two, the two of us, and I did all the talking. He said, what, what do you have? Because there was confusion on his face. And I said, I don't have anything. I didn't have stock. I didn't have anything. I was an employee. And yet I was the oldest and driving the company towards this buyout. And he said to me, you're either very loyal or very foolish. And then he ignored me and went back to talking to the CEO. I got to tell you, Janide, that placed me, I mean, I felt this small, even though I was the guy, I had set up the meeting, I had done the relationship, everything, but I didn't own that. And I did that multiple times where I helped other people build things. And when I sat down and I started this company and my wife says, what do you want to do? I want to build something that's I can point to and say, I did that. That's mine. It's a very modest goal. I'm not trying to be the CEO or a public. Nope. I want to set up a company that I can hire people that I empower that helps them achieve their own aspirational goals as individuals, and that I can have an impact on my clients in such a way that they say that they were better off after they came into contact with my company. So they're very value-driven goals that I have rather than very specific goals. How much revenue do I want to make? How much money do I want to make? Yeah, I've got some budget. uh, Some. I asked my wife a little while ago, how much money do I have to make for you to quit your job? Because she works as well here in tech. And she gave me a number. That number's in my head. When I can make that number and she can now give up her career, not give up her career, but she's done. She's ready to stop. So those are my goals. They're very modest compared to when they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. But now they're about creating something of value that empowers other people and that can have an impact on my clients that come into contact with me. What I do is irrelevant in some ways, but the fact that it has those outcomes is what's important to me. Okay. Any final words for the audience? No, this has been fun. Uh, I have a lot of stories. There's, we could keep going, but I really appreciate you giving me the chance to tell my story. Hopefully I've shared something that your audience can see that they, because when it come back to the college, they don't need that degree. They simply need to believe in themselves, take risks, be vulnerable and willing to be taught, and then just learn, learn, learn. The world is such a unique opportunity right now that they can easily take advantage of it. And I would encourage them to do that. So that would, thank you for allowing me to share my stories to help maybe inspire others to to take risks and to step out there and not worry about what they don't have and instead focus on what they could could become. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, it's been fun. I know I could probably talk to you for hours and hours and I'd probably still only be scratching the surface. So how would people support you? How would people follow you? They can find me in a variety of ways. Richard Bliss, Twitter. That's my Twitter account. You can look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, My 
It's linkedin.com slash in slash bliss, or you can just type in Richard Bliss. You'll find me. My book is on Amazon, Digital First Leadership. They can take a look. The Audible version should be out in about a week or so, so they can follow that. Or I have an online training course. If they want to learn some of the stuff that I'm doing, they can go out to my website, blisspointconsult.com and take a look there. But mostly it's just reach out, say hi on Twitter, say that you listened. And I love having those conversations. So that would be the best way to support me. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a fun episode. I know the audience is going to get so much value. And I know you'll reach your goal of providing impact, providing value, even though it's modest. I don't know. I prefer those goals. Thanks. All right. Have a good one, Richard. You too. Thanks for having me. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. Yeah, so you got no degree, no problem, no problem, any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving, growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing and knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree. No problem, any problem we can solve LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going